0: This is our last message in the New Beginnings series. This is the last message in our New Beginnings series. After we're done with the Shaken series, we're going to go to the next section of Genesis, and we're going to be looking at leaders and losers. Leaders and losers from the book of Genesis. How many of you know that there are both identified there for us? So we're going to decide, are we going to be a leader or are we going to be a loser based on what God gives for us, gives to us in the book of Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and we're looking at the flood. So let's start reading in verse 5. The Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you look down in verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and with out with pitch, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of the length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, the heights of it the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to understand this text. Help us to understand these chapters. Lord, help us to understand the reality of Your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first thing that I want you to see is that this is a true story. This is a true story. Uh, We went down to the Creation Museum. Laura and I just recently, Ken Ham spoke, and he said one of the things that bothers him more than anything else is to open up a children's book and see a picture of the ark, and it's it's a little bathtub with a giraffe and an elephant sticking out of it, and it looks like it's about to tip over and there's not enough room. He said the reason that bothers him is it's fine for children. It's a comforting and a fun scene for children. But as they grow, they begin to think that that's what the ark really was. And the simple fact of the matter is this is a true story. So first, we see that Noah was a real person. Noah was a real man. He is mentioned as one of the three righteous men with Job and Daniel in Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel, God identifies him as a righteous man. He identifies Daniel as a righteous man and Job as a righteous man. He's referred to as a genuine historic figure in Ezekiel 14, 14 and 20. He's included in the genealogies of Abraham and Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? You know why? All of us are descended from Noah. All of us. Every person in this room. All of us. He's a real person. New Testament references. He's referred to by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referred to by Peter. He's referred to by Paul. He was a real person. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was a real person, a real person. Then the ark was a real vessel. You know, this is presented, the idea of a worldwide flood, the idea of Noah and the ark, it's presented as just another of the mythologies of the ancient world. How many of you ever heard it referred to that way? Mythologies of the ancient world. The only problem is when you compare it to the other mythologies. Let me say this. Every known culture has a flood story. When our missionary, Daniel Re- or Jonathan Reed, went to the Amazon, remember, they're going to people who don't even know what an airplane is. They think it's a big bird. They've never had contact with the outside world. These are the people that the reeds are going to meet. They went and met a tribe, and the tribe has a flood story. That, that the great God was upset and was going to destroy the world, but he chose one man and his family and put them in a boat to save them. Where do these myths come from? They're rooted in history. Now, wait a minute. Don't they get pretty weird? Yeah, they sure do. Why? Because they depart from Scripture. Right? When you look at all of the other flood stories, whether it's the Epic of Gilgamesh or any of the other flood stories, when you look at them, they depart from reality. They depart from possibility. But when you look at the flood story in the scriptures, when you look at this ark, any person who understands shipbuilding... There was a man who uh, he works with, the, uh, uh, with Ken Ham's crew down in, in Kentucky now. He said that as a shipbuilder, as an engineer... He went and asked a man to help him understand what the ark would have been like. Well, the nautical engineer that he went to, as soon as he saw the dimensions that are given in Genesis chapter 6, he said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is real. (laughs) You know why? Because the dimensions, the proportions of the ark given in Genesis chapter 6 are the exact proportions of a modern container ship. Well, how could they have known that then? Well, God. (laughs) It's interesting how people will do these great leaps of logic, and then when God gives clear information, we say, oh, that that couldn't have been. It's right there in the Bible. So the ark was real. Um, If Here's where you get into some questions. How big is a cubit? Now, most of us have been taught 18 inches, and that's fine. That's fine, but we don't really know. It, was some, it depends on how big the people were because it went from your elbow to the tip of your finger. And so if you had Wade stand up and then you had me, our cubits are going to be different, just like our IQs. <laughs> our cubits... His will be higher, right, Wade? Isn't that right? At least higher. Our, the cubits could be different. So we're taking an average of 18 inches, but in history, it's considered somewhere between 17 and 25 inches, 17 and 25 inches. So at an 18, don't you love it people just stand up and give you numbers and your head starts going like this? But just, just imagine this. With an 18-inch cubit, that ship is 450 feet long. That's, that's bigger than a football field. 450 feet long. Huge. It's huge. Um... 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. One of the uh, I was listening to a guy named Chuck Missler who graduated from uh, the Naval Academy, and he said when he was at the Naval Academy, an upperclassman can ask an underclassman anything, and you have to get the answer. If you say I don't know, they'll give you a punishment. Your answer is supposed to be I'll find out. So one of the things that they would do is they'd say. Um, how much, he said, what does a Missouri-class uh, ship weigh? And what he was supposed to do was go back and find out what all of these ships, all of these classes weighed. He said, so an underclassman would go back and he'd go to this book and he'd memorize the weight of each of these ships. And he'd go back to the upperclassman, and he'd say, do you know what Missouri weighs? And he'd start to go, no, it weighs anchor. All ships weigh anchor. They displace a certain amount of weight. That was a way of teaching them. Do you think those underclassmen remembered that? <laughs> yeah, they did. So the idea is that this ship would have displaced, this ship would have displaced about 24,000 tons. It would carry point. Four million cubic feet of cargo this is the same as 522 railroad cars so now here's one of the questions that people say and we were just laura and i were just watching a show the other day with the kids and this kid started asking a question well how could those animals fit on the ark and how could they carry all the food and so here are the here are the things that people generally say the ark could not have been big enough to carry all of the animals right how many of you ever heard that the ark couldn't have been big enough to carry all the animals all right, that's one of the questions. The other question, the first is that the ark couldn't have been big enough to carry all the animals. And then the second one was how many animals were needed. All right, so if you ask them how big would it, How big was the ark, these are the people that say that the ark couldn't have been big enough. You ask them how big was it, they say, I don't know. Then they say it couldn't be big enough to carry all the animals, and you ask them, well, how many animals would be needed? I don't know. So these people are geniuses, right? And the answers are very simple. The answers are very simple. If the ark was an 18-inch, built based on an 18-inch cubit, it could carry 125,000 sheep. 125,000 sheep based on that size. Now listen, there are only 18,000 known species of animals. That's it. That's it. You could easily carry them On an arc that's this size. But let's say that that we're going to base it on a 25 inch. Now it would carry 340,000 sheep. But there are still only 18,000 species. It's not changing. You said, You can fit every dog in the world? I just, just in the last couple of weeks, I got a study on, someone did a study on the hair. On dogs, how many of you know that, there, that different types of dogs have different color or length or type of hair? How many of you understand that? Right? If you're going to buy a dog, do you want a long-haired dog or a short-haired dog? Do you want one that'll shed or one that won't shed? They took a thousand different types of dogs with a thousand different types of dog hair. Do you know what they found out? All of those different types of hair go back to three specific genes. Not Levi's. <laughs> Three specific genes. So do you know how many dogs you would need to produce all those different types? Two. That could carry all of those genes. You see? So here's the idea. What God said was to bring in an animal of every kind. Well, that means a dog and a cow and the different types kinds of animals and in and here's where 150 years ago they had no idea about chromosomes and genes now we do now we know that just like all the people can come from two all the different kinds of animals can come from two and they did so then they say what about the dinosaurs the dinosaurs died where do we find dinosaurs now (coughs) in the fossil record they're in, which has anyone ever met a live fossil don't look at your husband don't do that have you ever met a live fossil no they're dead the other thing is taking the animals on the ark and kent Hovind was so good yeah i believe he had all the animals but he brought little ones so you don't need to bring a full-grown elephant you bring a baby elephant amen very simple It's very simple. The other thing is, I want you to notice, um, so it's a real ark. It's a real flood. They were real animals. If you look in chapter 6 and look at what it says in verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Okay? Okay? So the reason for the male and female, so they could produce, and he tells them to bring them into the ark. And here's another question that people say: Well, how did he round up all of those animals? The problem with most skeptics is they can't read. Look at what it says. Verse 21, verse, verse 20, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort. What does it say? To keep them alive shall come unto thee to keep them alive. You can talk to any park ranger in any of our national parks when there's a natural disaster. Before it even happens, the animals are coming down to safety. How many of you have ever heard of that? God has put that in the animals. Do you think the animals knew there was a flood coming? Yeah. Do you know how they knew it? God told them. God speaks animal. And they came in. And they came into the ark. Very simple. It's very simple. Um, So it's a real ark. Then I want you to... So it's a real man, a real ark, um, and then it's a real date. I want you to notice something that is very interesting to me. And you're going to have to put your thinking cap on here, all right? If you're ready to think, say amen. 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 This is tough, and I'm not being facetious this time. Genesis chapter 8... So this is after the flood, after God has destroyed the animals. And look at verse 4. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. All right? A couple of things that I want you to know. Uh, We don't know for sure that the ark is on Mount Ararat. What does it say in the text? Mountains. It's a whole region. It's a whole area. When you go into Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 11. Look at Genesis chapter 11 verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Now look at what it says. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, Shinar is where they built Babylon. Shinar is the capital of Babylon. We know right where that is. Now, here's the problem. If, if If the ark is on Mount Ararat, they would have come south to Babylon. But the Bible says they came from the east. But that covers the mountainous regions of Ararat. So do you know what that means? Do you know where the ark probably is? Somewhere in Iran. Are you starting to see how all this is starting to come together? It's amazing how God has done that. Now, that's just a little tidbit that comes. When you actually believe the words of Scripture, it changes all of these popular teachings. Okay? Um, The idea that the ark was actually on Mount Ararat. Do you know where that came from? Marco Polo. Marco Polo claimed to have found the ark on Mount Ararat but he had no evidence of it. He just claimed to have seen something there. So that's where that concept came from, not because of the Scriptures. All right, so now, let's look at this date. We're back in chapter 8, back in chapter 8, and verse 4. Now look what the Bible says. The ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Why did the Holy Spirit want us to know this very date? Remember, we're... Grace Baptist Church is different from almost every other church in in, in America. Do you know why we take every word of the Bible seriously? Well, doesn't every church go find out? No, they don't. We take every word of God seriously. Why did the Holy Spirit want us to know this specific date? It's given in very specific terms, isn't it? Why did he want us to know this date? Well, you need to know that the Jews have two calendars. They have a civil calendar and a religious calendar. And their calendar is based around their feasts. And, of course, we have studied the feasts of Israel. There are seven. There are three feasts in the month of Nisan. All right? That's Passover, um, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Those are all in that month of Nisan. Then there's one that's in the middle. That's Pentecost. Then there are three fall feasts, and they're all in the month of Tishri. Okay? Very simple. You say, I don't know those names. That's okay. You just know that they're individual months. So three spring feasts, three fall feasts, and one that falls in the middle. And we know that each of those feasts are prophetic. They speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've studied that. Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover. Then the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our Passover. Jesus was buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread is separation, and Jesus Christ was separated from the Father for us, the next feast is a feast of first fruits, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the specific day of the feast of first fruits. That's awesome, isn't it? Then the next feast is a feast of Pentecost. That's when Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit. So He has fulfilled those first four. That's the promise that He will fulfill the next three. And we've covered that many times. So now, what about these fall feasts? Well, when God established these feasts, initially, in the book of Genesis, the first day of the month or the first day of the year would have been this Tishri, this feast of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah. Now, how many of you have heard of Rosh Hashanah? Of course you have. That's the that's the Jewish holy day. All right. So in Genesis, that was the first day of the week. That's what this date is. OK, now here's what God does in Exodus. When God instituted the Passover, listen to what he said. This is... And you don't have to turn there just for time's sake. But listen to what he said. This is Exodus 12.2. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So now God is changing the calendar for the Jews. So when in Genesis, in Genesis, this... Would Let me just read it to you. It will be easier than me trying to explain it. In G- Genesis 8-4 is talking about the seventh month on the Genesis calendar. This is Nisan on the new Passover calendar. So here's what you need to understand. On the old calendar, you have a date. If you put the new calendar right next to it, it's the same date. Jesus Christ, we know, was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. That's Passover. It's always the 14th of Nisan. We know, according to the word of God, that's when he was crucified. How long was he in the grave? That means he rose on the 17th of Nisan. Do you know what this is right here? It's the exact same day. Jesus Christ, the flood, ended, the new world began on the same calendar day as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing thing. That is the fingerprint of God on this book. There's no way that scribes could have made this up. There's no way they could have done it. This was the hand of the Almighty God doing that. It's an amazing thing. So when you see that date, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 4, that is the same calendar day as the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new beginning. Noah's new beginning on planet Earth was on the anniversary in anticipation of our new beginning in Jesus Christ. Then, this is a real worldwide disaster. It's a real worldwide disaster. Look at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13. The reason we have to say this is there are a lot of people that believe it was a local flood. It was not a global flood. How many of you have ever heard of Hugh Ross? Have you heard of Hugh Ross? Hugh Ross is a a guy that he calls himself a Christian, but he believes in billions of years. He's trying to get Christians to believe that the world is billions of years old, that God did not create the world in six calendar, in, in six literal days. All right. We just believe the Bible. Amen. But in order to have that position, he's got to explain away a worldwide flood. You see that? Because where did all the fossils come from? They either came from billions of years or they came from the flood. One or the other. So either we have a flood or we have billions of years. The Bible says there's a worldwide flood. But even before that, liberal scholars believe that what happened was Noah is writing about what he saw. And as he looked out, he only saw the flood in his area. So what happened was the Tigris and Euphrates rivers flooded and killed a bunch of people, all the people that he could see. The only problem is it's not Noah that's talking in the word of God. It is God himself. And God sees everything. Amen? These are people that do not believe the Bible. It's either a local flood or it's a worldwide flood. Listen to what God said. Let's see what God said about it. Chapter 6 and verse 13. And God said unto Noah, The end of the flesh around Tigris and Euphrates has come before me. What does it say? All. What does all mean? All. All. All means all, and that's all that all means. All right, now look at chapter 6 and verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. That's God speaking, not Noah. All right, look at chapter 7 and verse 4. For seven day, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain... "...upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth." Look at chapter 7 and verse 21. "...and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life." And all that was in the dry land died, and every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. That is a global and a worldwide flood. The other traditions, Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Hindu, Chinese, they all teach a global worldwide flood based from the history that we see in the Word of God. Universal or local, every living thing was destroyed. All the high mountains, look at chapter 7 and verse 19. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Look at what the Bible says in verse 20. Specific detail. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. So here's a question. How do we know, how did Noah know that the water was 15 cubits above the mountains? He did. Do you know how he knew? It's very simple. The ark was 30 cubits tall. It had a draft of half of that. So if he lands on the mountains of Ararat, the mountains of Ararat are 16,000 feet tall. They never touched bottom. So he knows that the water was at least 15 cubits above the highest mountains. That's pretty cool specific detail. Amen? And you get all that just by comparing the words of Scripture. All right, then, um, another reason we believe the world, uh, worldwide flood... The dinosaurs were quickly drowned and buried. Mammoths quickly drowned in North America and quick frozen in Siberia. So now you understand that they have found in Siberia giant woolly mammoths that were frozen standing up. They were frozen with food in their mouths, undigested food in their bellies. They they have found them. They still have the imprint of their teeth on the leaves. That's how fast they were frozen. Do you, know how, do you know what temperature the world had to be for that to happen? They figured it out. 175 degrees below zero. The only way that that can happen is when the tilt of the world changed. The world changed. You know, when, when, um, when who was it? I, I want to get the name right. When Admiral Byrd went to the South Pole, a hundred miles from the South Pole, do you know what they found? Petrified forests. That means there were forests on the South Pole. How did that change? Well, the Ice Age happened. How many of you have ever seen a glacier? Seriously, you've had the opportunity to actually see a glacier. I have also. I, I was up in the Alps. I was at the highest place in Europe. We're up on the Jungfrau. And we look out, and there's an 11-mile glacier there. We're standing there looking at it. And what's wild is it looks like there's a road in it. What that is, it's an ice flow. That's where this glacier is moving. Now, you can't see it move. You just see the result of it having moved. That's how slow it moves. Well, I'm thinking maybe that mammoth would have digested his food by then. See, the Ice Age cannot explain the change in Antarctica. It can't explain woolly mammoths in Siberia. It can't explain that. The the Ice Age cannot explain the fossils of mammals below sea level and the fossils of fish on the highest mountains. They are there, folks. They are there. The only thing that can explain that is a worldwide flood. I don't have time to go into it all, but the Grand Canyon. I'm just telling you, there's no way the Colorado River cut out the Grand Canyon. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? There's no way the Colorado River did that. One reason is it's flowing the wrong direction. Oh, I know, it changed. But What would it take for the Colorado River to change its direction? Oh, maybe the earth moving? When did that happen, according to scientists? They cannot explain all of this. They can't do it. They can't do it. The only thing that can explain it is a worldwide flood. Then fossils. Fossils are dead. This means it had to happen after Adam. There was no death until Adam. No decay. These things haven't decayed. It was a sudden, quick change. And then how about this? Why are there no fossils today? You know there aren't fossils still being made? Why not? Because we haven't had the flood and God has promised not to do that again. Next time it will be with fire. All right? Now, so, number one, it's a true story. Number two, it's a typical story. That means that it's a type. Noah is a type of Christ. Look at Genesis chapter 5. What I wanted to do with that true story is I wanted to try and at least address... Of course, we could spend weeks on the flood... I wanted to address the basic questions. Number one, was it really a worldwide flood? You cannot cover the highest mountains unless it was a worldwide flood. A flood would only go to the foothills. So it would have to cover the entire planet in order to cover the highest mountains. And that's what the Bible says happened. And that's how we have fossils up there. So it had to be a worldwide flood. Secondly, the ark was large enough to protect the people. Thirdly, the ark was, even according to modern shipbuilding standards, stable in all kinds of water. It was stable. It was able to protect. Let me, let me do throw this one out. What they say is there was just a Discovery Channel show in the last year or two that said that the ark could not have been that large because you cannot make a wooden vessel that big. Well, the Greeks did it. Ancient shipbuilding. And where did the Greeks learn it? From their fathers and from their fathers who saw how, how Noah had built the ark. And what they did, if you go to the Creation Museum, they have figured out by looking at ancient shipbuilding techniques how that they laminated the the wood and then they used mortise and tenon so you'd have a hole and that's a mortise and then a tenon would stick into that and so the wood can't move off of the mortise and tenon and then as the wood got wet and swelled, what does that do? It makes it tighter, it could not leak, they could very easily have built the ark. This was with the technology that was known back then. The other thing we have to understand is people were living longer then. They were stronger. They were more healthy than they are now. We have this idea that men are getting better. We don't work as hard as our great-grandparents did. We don't work anywhere near as hard. You say, well, we must have because I'm so tired. Listen, they were much more productive per man than we are. Machines and technology have helped us to surpass that. But we don't work as hard as they used to physically. Now think about living to be six or 700 years old, what you would learn, the technology that you would know, the things that you would know how to do. How many of you have ever gone to your grandmother? You're watching her cook, and she's able to do things so much faster than you can in the kitchen. Has that ever happened? And they don't have – she did it without the microwave, right? That's the same way it would have been then. So the technology was there. The size was there. The proportions are right Uh, All of the animals could have fit on there. All of the modern science tells us that we can get the animals from it. So what I wanted to demonstrate to you is that the flood is true because we believe it in the Bible. Amen? But it is also a viable scientific theory that better explains the current state of the world than any of the other theories that are postulated. Better than any of them. All right? Now, so now we're looking at Noah. Noah. Noah as a type of Christ, his name, Genesis 5, 28, look at what it says. And Lamech lived in 180 and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. So God gives us Noah. Noah's name means rest, rest. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now look at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, the first thing we learn about Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The first time we see Jesus Christ presented to the world, God the Father comes down and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3.17. The next thing we're told about Noah in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. He was a just man. There's only one man who ever walked our earth who was inherently and intrinsically righteous, and that was he whom Noah foreshadowed, he of whom the centurion testified. Certainly, this was a righteous man. Luke twenty three forty seven. The next thing that we read in verse 9 is that Noah was perfect in his generations. Noah was perfect in his generations. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ to his mother... That thing, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Only Jesus Christ was really perfect in his generations coming from God the Father. Noah was a type of Jesus Christ. Then the ark is the type of salvation. Now look at this. This is so important that you understand how significant the ark is. There was only one ark. And there's only one way to be saved. Amen? There was only one door into the ark. And there's only one door to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. He said, I am the door. Then, once you were in the ark, you were saved. Everyone that was in the ark made it through the flood. Everyone that was outside the ark died. Folks, there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. When the door was closed, that ended all theological discussion. Well, I don't believe God would destroy the world with a flood. Well, he did. When that door closed, that ended (laughs) theological discussion. Then I want you to see, number one, we said it's a true story. Number two, we said it is a typical story. It it is a type of Jesus Christ and salvation. And then number three, it's a telling story. I want you to see Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 the first thing well actually let's look at verse 5 and god saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth we need to understand how salvation comes from this text verse 8 gives us to us gives it to us but noah found grace in the eyes of the lord listen to this oh long and dark the stairs i trod with trembling feet to find my god gaining a foothold bit by bit Then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still, with weakening grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God while He serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listen, a footfall on the stair. On, the sa- on that same step where I, afraid, faltered and fell and lay dismayed, and lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. You see, Noah could not have been perfect enough. God came to him. We need to understand we cannot be good enough to go to heaven. We cannot be good enough to have eternal life. The only way we have it is that God came down. How? Through grace. Through grace. We need to understand grace. And in understanding it, we need to have God's recognition of a depraved culture. Do you see that in verse 5? God's recognition of a depraved culture. Their wickedness was great, the Bible says. Do you see that? And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Why was their wickedness so great? And this is what you and I need to understand. This is is where it applies to all of us. Because it's speaking of all men. Well, first, internally. Internally. Look at what it says. Verse 5 again. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, internally the thoughts of his heart, This refers to man's inner being, his emotions, his will, his person. This is where he makes his decisions. This is what determines what and who he really is. The Bible says, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the Bible says that we're only evil continually. Wicked. Wicked. In other words, man is rotten to his core. So it's internal. But not only is it internal, but it's intentional. Look at what it says in verse 5 again. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination, imagination. Imagination is conception, purpose, frame. It's the idea of our thoughts, but our th- thoughts on purpose. How many of you have ever heard John Lennon's song, Imagine? That is wicked. It's not beautiful. No heaven above us, no hell below us. Imagine. Imagine. You need to imagine what the Word of God tells you to imagine. This is, this is the thought of man. And the imaginations are only evil and only wicked. So it is intentional. It's internal. It's intentional. And then it's intense. You need to understand the significance of it. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It it doesn't say enough to say that man isn't good enough to save himself. Now, now I want you to think about that. If If I was trying to give Bob the gospel and I said, you might be good, but you're not good enough to save yourself. That's untrue that is not a true statement. brother bob as a lost man you're not good at all. there is none. romans 3:10 there is none that doeth good. none. see we think that somehow we're different from the world that god destroyed. we're not. we're not. It's not enough to say that man's not good enough. He is not good. So that's God. That's what God saw. That is God's recognition of a depraved culture. And then look at God's response to a defiled conscience. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. He determined. His determined response to this internal, intentional, intense wickedness was to destroy man. That's the state of the world. We need to understand that. But what was God's resource for delivering the world? What is it? Well, look at verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Nothing will help a man outside of grace. Nothing. Nothing. If you're in this world right now, and I think most of us are, As I look out at some of you, I can see you're in another world right now. But those of us who live in this world, you might be thinking, man, I'm messing up. And you might be. You know what I can tell you? Look for grace. Look for God's grace. Remember, If we weren't wicked, we wouldn't need grace. If we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need a Savior. Jesus is the friend of sinners. But listen to what Jesus said about this world. These are the very words of Jesus Christ while He was here on this earth. Listen to what He said. He called him a corrupt tree. He said, ye being evil, evil and adulterous nation. There's none good but God, wicked servants in a vineyard. There's an entire chapter of condemnation for the Pharisees. He told Jerusalem, ye will not come. Ye have not the love of God. Ye receive me not. Ye believe not. And we could go on and on. That is Jesus Christ's estimation of the world. So you know what he did? He died for us. Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth. He proved his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is grace. That is grace. It is obvious that Jesus had a very negative opinion of the nature of man. Yet he came to die for man's sins. That is grace. Our text says that God saw that he was grieved. Both of these verbs demonstrate that this action was carried on for years. It's an amazing place for the first recorded word, grace, in the Bible. You know that Romans 6 or Genesis 6 8, on the law of first mention? Now we see what grace is really about. The world is so wicked, and yet God still reaches down. Listen to what Donald Barnhouse, Donald Gray Barnhouse, an old Presbyterian preacher. Listen to what he said. Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. But love that stoops is grace. And that's what God did. Grace is the free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Saving grace. For by grace are you saved, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Then sustaining grace. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and strength to help in time of need. You see, there's saving grace. We come to Him to be saved. And then there's sustaining grace. That's the grace of our Redeemer that helps us through our daily lives. Look for grace. If I can tell you one thing about this story of Noah, here's what it is. Look for grace. If I can tell you one thing about the worldwide flood, you know what I'd tell you? Look for grace. In this world that seems to be shaken, if there's one thing I could tell you to do, you know what it would be? Look for grace. Because as soon as you think you deserve something from God, that's when you do not understand grace. The Bible says very clearly, the Bible says very clearly that all of us deserve the judgment of God. Aren't you glad he's loving? If anything can demonstrate the judgment of God, it's the flood. But if anything can demonstrate the grace of God, it's the flood. Do you know what it said? The Bible tells him in Genesis chapter 7, he says, Come into the ark. That's just like Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 where he said, Come up hither. You see, the only way that we can come to Him is when He calls us. That's it. But you know what's wonderful about that? Jesus Christ said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He stood and He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know what Jesus is saying to you right now if you're lost, if you're not saved? He's saying, Come. If you're a believer and you're living in this world and you're trying to figure out your next step to follow the Lord, do you know what he's telling you? Come. Come. If you're struggling, if you're you're struggling in your relationships, in your marriage, in your finances, do you know what Jesus is telling you right now? Just come to me. I have the answers. Stop trying to do it on your own. Come to me. It's all by grace. Grace. Can we finish it up with this? Go to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. So Paul says, look, Galatians, I have made it clear that Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Now look at verse 2. This only would I learn of you. So we would say it this way. I've got one question for you. I have one question for you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So when he says you receive the Spirit, when you you get saved, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit of God, you see it's capitalized there, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in you when you're saved. Did you receive the Holy Spirit, he asks them, by works or by hearing of faith? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Of course it is. It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the only way you can receive the Spirit of Christ is by faith. For by grace are you saved, through faith faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God so he asks them this only would I learn of you received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith verse 3 are you so foolish having begun in the spirit are you now made perfect by the flesh I wonder if you're here today you're saved I know there are some people here that are not born again. You've told me that. I hope that you will be born again today. Don't wait. But those of you who are born again, and you have told me that you are born again, are you struggling to live the Christian life? Is there anybody here that would say, Pastor, I, in my Christian life right now, I am in a struggle? Would you raise your hand? Look, all over. All over. So here's the question... Here's the question that the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has for you. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? See, what, what you need to do when you're struggling, and me too, our Sunday school class, they could tell you I was struggling this morning. Here's what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to take that struggle to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive His grace to help us through that struggle. We don't defeat that struggle by trying harder. We overcome that struggle by grace. See, the only way that we're going to be made like Christ is by grace. That's it. That's it. As we surrender to His will, to His plan, and trust Him. So here's the whole story of the flood Look for grace. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word.